Hi, I'm Oliver Lennon and welcome to the Sendeo podcast, uh, where we delve into all things conversational AI with some of the sharpest brains from some of the most innovative companies in the world of customer experience. These are not a series of interviews, but conversations, um, regular discourse designed to provoke, educate, enlighten the business professionals with insights, learning and guidance on leveraging conversational AI to deliver meaningful CX. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Hong. Daniel is CMO of a base startup, Minerva CQ, also has held various roles with analysts, including Forrester, Ovum, Data Monitor, and contributed many articles to the likes of The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and The Financial Times. Um, brilliant conversation with Daniel today, covering um, a whistle-stop tour of the history of contact centers and automation, um, right back from 2007 and speech tech and beyond. Um, I'm really looking forward to how AI has been utilized with ChatGPT and right into the future with what the guys at Minerva, Minerva are doing um, in terms of agent um, assist with AI to drive efficiencies at that end. Um, a great conversation with uh, Daniel. Hope you'll enjoy it. Daniel, we've bumped into each other and known each other for, I'm not going to say how long, but it's, quite a few years um, in various <laughs> guises. Um, and I know you, you've been involved in the industry for 20 or there, maybe 20 plus years, I think, in terms of the contact center and the tech and self-service. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks, Oliver. Happy to be here. Um, question for you before we sort of get into um, the 20th of August, 2007. Do you remember what you were doing for chance? In in uh, in two thousand seven. Two thousand and seven. Yes, it's fifteen years ago. Wow. I know. Well, listen, I'm I'm not going to wreck your brain because I <laughs> I can hardly remember what I was doing the twentieth of August, twenty twenty one. Never mind two thousand and seven. Um, you were actually presenting at Speech Tech two thousand and seven in Times Square, New York. Um, yeah. Reason to bring that up, actually, Malcolm Gladwell, who most of our listeners and you probably know. He's a pretty good author. I actually listened to a lot of his podcasts as well. Um, had released a book at that time called The Tipping Point, and that was a keynote of Speech Tech 2007. And the whole, I guess, focus around or the story was that speech technology had reached a tipping point and was going to revolutionise the the industry as we knew it then. Um, roll forward 15 years and ChatGBT has launched and it's going to revolutionise the industry. So... Are we, I mean, you, you've been involved in this and you, and it obviously give us a little bit of background and to where you're at now and your previous roles, but are we at that type of tipping point again or is this another hype cycle we're in? I think um, there's probably some inflated expectations of what ChatGPT can do. Um, of course, there's a lot of excitement. There was a lot of wow factor. I don't know if you had a chance to play around with it. Um, some of my coworkers, a lot of my friends, uh, myself, I played around with it a little bit, not as much as um, most of uh, my colleagues have, but it could potentially change how our perception of what is good and raise the bar in terms of what self-service and chatbot can actually do and generative AI. But there will probably be some unintended consequences of of ChatGPT in the enterprise should or when they open up the APIs and and they go um, you know full throttle on on leveraging 
ChatGPT and the technologies with their own internal data, um, enterprise systems of record to start creating some interesting and effective experiences for customers. So I said you've been in the industry, so you're uh, part of a base startup at the moment, Minerva CQ, if I got that right. Um, prior yep. to that, you'd been, I think I looked at your profile on one of your, I think I'm about in Twitter. Um, what is it, a recovering industry analyst and a photographer? Some of your photography is really, really good. The Bay Area in the clouds, by the way, fantastic. But you've been through, you know, you've been with some of the big analysts, Forrester, back in the day. Um, mm. Give us a little bit of, I guess, historical background, even to 2007 and prior to that, you know, what self-service mm -hmm. was doing, what the industry was like, and, and what were the big themes then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the the awesome um, kind of parts of being an analyst in an analyst role is you're able to kind of sit in your white ivory tower and you're able to look at the past to be able to have a different lens on the present to extrapolate the future. And that's like your job. Um, so when I started covering contact center and customer interaction technology at Ovum, which was data monitor and now it's called Omdia. I think the uh, data monitor, that's when I think we first met, which is. Which yeah. Yeah. Years, yeah, sorry, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like have, it's having it's like having the moniker Atari <laughs> or for some of the gamers. Anywho, so when I looked at the evolution of the contact center, I think how we viewed it um, at Data Monitor or Ovum at the time was looking at it in decades, and it's pretty logical the evolution of the contact center, and that leads up to self service to your question. In the 1960s. We started with the toll-free networks. 1970s came the ACD, right? So now you have the switching, you have the routing with the transmission. 1980s, you had IVR. So now you started to operationalize and figure out how to route these calls in a more sophisticated manner. Of course, those are all touchstone and DTMS in the 1980s. And the 1990s came around, and now you're like, oh, we should probably have a little bit more historic context more data on the customer and CRM started making its way in. So now you have all the plumbing and you have data there on the customer. How can we optimize this huge army of people that are working in these call centers? That's what we called them back then before they became contact centers. So 2000 came around and you had workforce optimization. And that's really when it started um, workforce management, quality monitoring, um, you know, call recording, all that stuff coming together. And right around the 2000s time frame is IP. Remember voice over IP um, and, and SIP? That started making its inroads into the, um, into the industry and having adoption. I think when you look at inflection points in the industry, um, it's not as exciting as things are right now with AI in the contact center, but 2008 time frame, you had... Um, really a, a more rapid uptake of IP contact centers. So I, I think that's interesting because for, later on from there, now that you can toll costs and all that starts becoming a little bit more affordable, you started seeing inroads of other technology uh, coming in and contact center 
finally got a lot more exciting. So right around the 2010 time frame to like 2020 is when we saw a renaissance period in, um, in, in the contact center. So you had social. Remember the United Breaks My Guitar guy uh, that he, he did uh, great for himself, <laughs> traveling all over the world telling the story. Oh, what, what was his name? I, I know he did a few Genesis conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot his name, but it was yeah, it was so good. He he he. It was a great story and kind of a a great awakening, I think, in in customer service, and the power of social as well. And you had mobile, right? Social, mobile, and cloud. And mobile, it took a while for. Um, and we're talking about two thousand seven and the iPhone. Um, two thousand. It took a few years for the contact center, customer service to start leveraging. Um, and understanding, uh, oh, mobile apps, mobile web, right? The M dots, um, as as we used to say, and how to use that for customer care and customer service, and to actually enable consumers uh, to do transactions. So you have social, mobile, cloud. Those that was a trifecta, very exciting times. And then towards the la- uh, later part of the 2010s, or I, I think they were really close to around 2016 to 2020 timeframe, you started seeing conversational AI. Um, come into play with chatbots. Now, chatbots have been around for a long time, deterministic chatbots, but uh, the ability to leverage natural language and to make that even more um, powerful with some predictive analytics there for intent determination and and to like map that to an existing knowledge base, you had more powerful chatbots. And that's what we started seeing towards the... Um, you know, the second half of the 2010. Now, uh, you also have underneath, why did it start working better? Um, why was, um, you know, text analytics, all of that stuff, why was speech recognition better? Uh, there's more computing power. Um, the CPU resources were a lot cheaper, uh, memory as well, refined algorithms. But there are a lot of other things that I think were, uh, contributed to uh, like speech recognition and conversational AI being a lot uh, more powerful, like deep neural nets. Um, and and then like 2020, um, kind of our day and age right now, you started seeing the application of AI in the context center. It's outside of just chatbots, it's still there, but I think AI being leveraged across like routing, um, collaborative intelligence, like improving your agents in real time and other applications such as those in context center. And I think that's the era that we're in right now. It's quite exciting. Yeah. I mean, just listening to you and even going back, you're right in the late 2000s. And I remember even talking to enterprises and they were afraid to let go of copper. It was very much, if we can't see it, so the whole IP movement was not trusted. But we have moved to that, but yet still something like 70% of contact center seats are still on-prem, they're not in the cloud. So it does seem to be an industry that takes an awful long time to actually leverage the technology, even to a limited degree, mm-hmm. never mind to the best of its advantage. What, what, I mean, what do you think that, or why do you think that is? Is that Have you seen any chanel behind that, or is it just, <laughs> we're just laggards? Yeah, you know, contact center has, typically been laggards and usually contact center reports it up into operations 
And for operations, yes, you want incremental improvement over time. You want to streamline efficiency. But um, there's big ironworks in these contact centers. It's And there could be thousands of people behind the scenes, these agents. How are you going to get them to adopt this new technology? How are you going to smoothly migrate them over? I mean, just going from premise to cloud, I've heard some horror stories of um, even in today's day and age of, of moving that and, and having the project management, having all the business process mapping, it, it is not easy. Um, you also have to consider the, the leadership. If, if contact centers are still perceived as cost centers, you're not going to invest as much in. I think getting the budget maybe a bit difficult of do we need to do that now, right? Do we need to have this um, big migration over into cloud now? Do we need to have um, all these other like latest, greatest technology? So I think there's a bit of hesitation in a industry that's uh, almost always been laggards. But when you pull back the layers a bit, it doesn't all fall evenly into contact center immediately laggards. There's different um, variations by vertical that you see. Um, I know we were talking about Malcolm Gladwell. There's a guy named Jeffrey Moore who had like crossing the chasm. Remember that? That that, that yeah. made its rounds. In Pretty the famous book, yeah, back in the day. St- I think still. Up yeah, yeah, there. yeah. If you if you align it vertically in the early adopters, and maybe it changed a little bit with kind of big tech coming coming into the space now, but traditionally and for the most part today. Um, Financial services, five-year cycles, and contact center. Those are typically the early adopters. They'll try things, right, through the innovation labs. USAA is a great example of a company in financial services. Uh, Bank of America. And then you have um, communication, which are the telcos, right? They're, they've traditionally been early adopters. And then you have um, travel and tourism and retail. Those are like the, the four, but financial services typically have around five-year life cycles. Then you have like healthcare and utilities on the other half. They're going to sweat out those contact center assets 10 plus years. Right? Uh, you you talk to some of them, they're still on Nortel uh, via CMS. Yeah. Well, well, via CMS will probably never go anywhere. Still kind of always going to be embedded in the contact yeah. center. I, I'm actually aware yeah. of one of those large organizations still in a migration, an on-prem to an on-prem from Avaya platforms to a non-Avaya, not say who they are, but a non-Avaya platform. And I'm thinking, yeah. how are you ever going to get to the cloud? Maybe one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's there, yeah, there. You know that 70 30 percent number um is is important because there's a lot of opportunities there to upgrade and kind of move these premise-based systems over to the cloud um and, and that's you know without going off too much on a tangent here that's why contact center has been so sexy in the eyes of the financial financial analysts for quite some time now the contact center is the last bastion of the enterprise that hasn't gone to the cloud. So then you're, you're seeing these huge valuations of contact center technology companies and, and you see them, um, you know, trading with, uh, uh, doing quite well in terms of the market cap. So, um, I think, I think, uh, investors see that the financial community sees that, uh, we all know that, that eventually it, it just makes a lot of sense to go to the cloud with all the other 
multi-site routing, virtualization, all the inherent benefits that you'll get with going to the cloud. But as you do that, you will probably double click into, are we, um, to take that moment to reassess, do we have the right channel strategy? Do we have the right self-service capabilities? Do we have the right um, agent tooling there? And, uh, and the myriad of technologies that kind of come into customer service and how to align that with the broader digital transformation or other parts of the organization. And I mean, if we're looking looking at today, I was actually just flicking through for comparison that speech tech um, uh, that they published in two thousand and seven in terms of the uh, companies who are presenting, who are showcasing, and it's the proverbial elephant's graveyard of uh, companies that used to exist from Vicor, Tuvox, Speech Objects, Voice <laughs> Objects, Speech Cycle, name them all. It's and if we roll forward to now, and I know we're both involved in, in relatively early stage companies, the only difference is you can call yours a Bay startup. I can't, but that's a different story altogether. Um, you know, if we roll forward into the current day and conversational AI, it seems like another bit of a, I call it a, a feeding frenzy. I mean, what, what are you seeing mm -hmm. in that as well? Yeah. Um, so... I remember um, when I was at Forrester, we had some very interesting intellectual conversations of actually the term of conversational AI. Where does that fit in? Um, and depending on the an analyst firm, I think Gartner may have a little bit broader definition. I know Opus Research, Dan Miller and, and Derek and Scott have a different take where it's a little bit more inclusive. But conversational AI back in our days was what, natural language? And while we didn't have the whole, um, we didn't market it out as AI back then, but it was because there was machine learning and a lot of the technologies that have just made it into uh, the verbiage of marketing these days. Um, so conversational AI, I think, number one, because of deep neural nets, the accuracy got a lot better. So now... When you and I and everyone else in the speech industry went to a cocktail party around 2007 and someone asked you, oh, what do you do? Oh, speech recognition. Oh, cool. Like, um, like, how is it used? Yeah, you know, you call 1-800 customer service and you hit that IVR and, and says, how can I help you today? They're all, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> like, nine out of 10 people would say, oh, it doesn't work. And, and it's, it's interesting. First off, like, that's the simplest question. Is it accurate? Is it going to work? And there were a lot of things that happened between 2007 till now where it did get better. And I know, I know I mentioned like deep neural nets. That's definitely something. Before that was what hidden Markov modeling in the 1970s, which actually it did um, wonders for speech recognition accuracy. But deep neural nets was actually, I think, a, a very important part of making it accurate. A lot of other elements are there as well. Um, and people don't talk about this. It's in 2007 with the iPhone was essentially kind of the birth of the, of the smartphone, right? Before yeah. then, it was all feature phones. I think that's what, what it is that we called it. Yeah, 2710 Nokia, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and these, these, these iPhones um, or and then the Google devices and, and Samsung's, all, all these kind of came out. They started having mul multiple um, microphones in there. So when you have more than uh, one microphone, you know, maybe two or three, 
then you have better uh, ability for noise cancellation and ambient noise detection. And that changed the accuracy rates quite a bit of, of these devices. Another thing is in the, in the smart, smart devices at home, their accuracy, accuracy rates are pretty good. They have like seven or eight microphones in there. And they're also on a different audio sampling rate of 16 kilohertz as opposed to PSTM, which is eight kilohertz. So all of these kind of came together. So no one actually says speech recognition sucks. It's just kind of that whole notion or negative perception kind of disappeared because in our, in our everyday lives, we're, we're using speech recognition and it's quite accurate. Yeah, but I think even back then and even more recently, your point, probably eight or nine out of ten of those systems did struggle. Because um, we used to have a term back in the day of calling IVR hell, which we were yeah. usually across the board quite good at building quite often. Again, I'm, and I, I've seen it recently in the last couple of years now, what I'm terming chatbot hell, because it's sometimes we yeah. don't learn from the lessons of the past. Um, so we you know, replicate what we had in IVRs and make it as complicated in a chatbot or in an AI world. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves, but I do think the whole conversational piece, and particularly with ChatGPT, that opens up the opportunity. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I do think, you know, there's something there about that lag, laggard approach um, and why the industry isn't adopting some of this technology as... I the observation was uh, the pandemic time and everyone's reacting. Um, a lot of companies, especially the travel companies, had to just stand up chatbots mm. to help customers with um, canceling flights or travel plans, and they were just getting slammed. And they couldn't put that ability and that logic and code that into existing chatbots. They stood up another chatbot entirely, so you had like multiple chatbots on some of these digital properties, as as you know. Um, but and, and there's a huge push for self service and chatbot um, investments at, towards the beginning of the pandemic. As we started getting out of the pandemic, uh, I think in terms of the customer experience, your reference to chatbot hell, there was a lot of companies that started taking um, there's a backlash towards chatbots. They started taking them down. And it wasn't just the ones that they stood up during the pandemic, uh, but they, they felt that it wasn't delivering the right experience. Um, customers were frustrated, right? So I wouldn't say that like all of the companies. There were um, some good examples of companies, which of course they don't come to mind, that just pulled down the chatbot. They didn't have uh, the trust that the chatbot can do what they had hoped that it would do. However, um, I just recently came across an article yesterday, and it was it was a commission study by Tiara. It was in in Forbes uh, on the website, and they did an assessment of like chatbots, and and it's some good data. I encourage everyone to take a look at that article. I think it's like thirty percent of consumers will take their business elsewhere if the chatbot experience sucks. Right. Now, thirty percent is good. So, but then. You know, the silver lining is there are um, other, um, I don't know what number it is, uh, but it, it was a lot larger thing. If the chatbot experience was good, I'm going to stay, keep my business with, with with this company that I'm, you know, chatting with um, via chatbot. So I think there's um, 
jury's still out. There's there's chatbot hell. There's there's bad chatbots. People get turned off by it. But if it's a really good experience, then I think they're a little bit more patient than yeah. being able to interact with chatbot. And I I do think it's on both the vendor side and the um, business side because I think from a vendor side we've all certainly the last number of years been you know this is easy this is simple and e- absolutely it's simple and easy to do some of these elements um, and uh, therefore from the uh, business side they've tried to throw things together quickly but what I've seen in more probably the last year or so certainly larger organizations are taking this technology much more seriously so they're putting the right teams around that from the integration side of things from the um, I was going to call them the VUE designers, but the uh, mm. the interaction yep. designers to get the right interaction, yep. actually then to doing the right flows. And now when you layer on um, the likes of uh, large language models, you are starting to see much better implementations, but that takes time and effort, and it does have a cost, but also should have an mm. ROI. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had the opera, you know, being an analyst um, in, in my past days, you had a great opportunity to meet with brands that are just just killing it when it comes to certain technologies. And I remember talking to, um, I believe it was EA Gaming. Well, like in the gaming space, their chatbots were were quite good. They were they were like the Ferraris of. Yeah. <laughs> of chatbot industries. And, and the reason I say that is their management through or gave the, the right amount of resources to the team to be successful to help their gaming community. And I remember this EA uh, Electronic Arts, I, I believe, um, their chatbot was how they approached it, how you just kind of outlined it. They had multiple team members. They had they went went out with an MVP that best practices. They would iterate every two weeks and improve. They would really look at um, each of the like interactions. I don't know what their volumes were, but uh, they were able to do that and have the right analytics behind and constant iterative improvements for the chatbot just to just to ramp it up and make it very powerful. They also had uh, the ability to peel multi intent. Even even this years ago, to be able to do that, but they they had the right resources to treat it like a project that's constantly ongoing, not to set it and forget it, yeah. but um, constantly invest in that. And to your point, with the uh, design and all those different aspects of understanding customer behavior and how to best engage them, and to design the chatbot conducive to their journey, I think was was key for them. And and their metrics showed that in terms of the performance, how well. Um, their chapel was being received and used. Yeah, again, I think, you know, the learnings from the past when, when you were, you know, using open speech, um, natural language, the tuning cycles and the ongoing feeding and watering was, if not more expensive, as expensive as any initial implementation. And again, I think, and yeah. I do see now they, um, you know, moving into the AI, you know, multi-channel, uh, asynchronous on chat whatever they are now starting to put some of those larger better programs around it um but what do you think obviously you know we started talking about chat gbt at uh, gpt at the outset and generative ai and and how that in a matter of what two months i think it's gone from 
I think it was five million users within five days or something, and in two months it's gone to fifty million, and within three months it's supposedly a hundred million, and it took TikTok something like nine months to get to a hundred million users. Is that going yeah. to change? Um, if nothing else, it'll change consumer expectations, I guess. But how, how do you see that sort of impacting larger organizations and the implementation approach? Yeah, um, I, I think with ChatGPT and just outshining a lot of the other AI that people can use out there, um, it'll definitely set a precedent. There will be kind of what consumerization of IT, I don't know if this is a proper term, but consumerization of like customer service or customer chatbots in a way of, of the expectations. But there's the application, I think, of ChatGPT in the enterprise is we don't know yet because on, on the one side of it, there are some potential challenges and you know, when, when I thought about ChatGPT in the enterprise, first off, we could talk all we want. It's it's not ready yet. When they open up their APIs and an enterprise actually start using it, and then we'll see a lot more innovation application. Uh, but something comes to mind. It's not deterministic. Um, it's which means that from a QA and governance perspective, um, process adherence there could be some issues there because it's not deterministic. Whether there's a different step to actually building that and doing the QA on that is one thing. So you'll ask it a question or just give an answer back, right? If, if you have compliance issues there, that, that might be a, a challenge, right? The, so that's one. There's also the, um, I, I think, I think it, it would have to be constrained to certain amount of use cases first um, within the organization and how you deploy that out. And, and it will take another, a few years for ChatGPT to get the comfort level and, and, and the enterprise to understand like what they can actually do with it. But from that, I feel that there will be more innovation in terms of the application of what ChatGPT can do. Because I don't think it's just going to be chatbots. I think there's a whole slew of potential benefits of, I'm sure that you've also thought about. Yeah, well. I mean, and that's, you know, thinking about that and not moving forward, I know it's an area that, that you're working in at the moment with your startup with Minerva CQ around. Obviously, you know, we've talked about conversation AI at the customer engagement, but once you start to move it right through the process, and I'm thinking here, agent assist, I mean, how do you see that sort of, you know, AI impacting on that and, and what are you seeing in terms of what you guys are doing and how that yeah. move things forward? Uh -huh. um, so in our area, that we're, what we're focused on is what we call collaborative intelligence and it's, it's really the, the blending of AI with the agents in real time. So kind of guiding them through the conversation that AI is listening in and giving the agent dialogue suggestions, giving it behavioral cues, oh, sorry, giving it, giving the agent behavioral cues. <laughs> Horrible. You're, you're uh, getting, I didn't mean it. You're pretty anyway. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, knowledge surfacing, and that's kind of like what standard is. Where we're focused on is actually adapting that conversation with the right workflows 
for the agent. So it's, it's actually responding, not just giving cues to the agent on what it is to do, but also um, looking at it from a journey perspective. What's the best workflow? How is that? And the workflow adapts as a customer saying whatever it is that they're saying about the issue or any like um, information that they're sharing. There's like form filling. So it's, it's really trying to create a, a keyboardless experience where um, AI is really helping take um, take out some of the mundane tasks or the you know what would be manual like um, typing in, in, um, input. And by doing that, then the uh, agent can really focus on the customer. So you have human intuition really um, homing in on what the needs are, where uh, the AI um, um, is being able to do some of the back end stuff as well. So I, I think the combination of human intelligence and machine intelligence, the one plus one equals three is really where, where I think um, some, what, what it is that we're headed towards in the contact center. So it's not AI will replace the agent, right? An agent with AI will replace the agent is kind of what we so, see will potentially. So, so what does the agent become then? Are they, I mean, that'll be interesting to see, because again, that's been one of the, you know, the whole agent has been one of the staples, if you will, of the contact center, contact center call center mm -hmm. back from the 1960s. It realistically hasn't changed. Yes, there's been pieces of technology that's helped, but, but that's yeah. been the ones kind of static piece. Do you see that changing? You know, the role of the agent and how they fit in? Yeah, I kind of see where, you, where you're going with this. Um, so if you take a step back and go up on like Mount Everest and take a look down to that huge kind of, uh, you know, I don't know how many thousands of feet it is up there, but <laughs> that high. If ChatGPT does what we think that it'll do, and I think a lot of us are on the same page of really driving good self-service and answering questions for the customer. And if enterprises are good with leveraging ChatGPT to improve some type of transactional stuff as well, we will see um, what I think a pretty massive um, decrease in agent um, headcount. And then what happens is what I feel you need agents that are um, more empathetic, that are more in tune with with uh, the customer, very much specialist when it comes to the company's product, when it comes to the culture. Think about like a REI, like if you call a contact center agent, they're probably wearing REI gear. They're probably, um, they know a lot about the product. They can tell you about it. Things that ChatGPT uh, just can't, right? Um, there's also, you know, there's a great quote um, and actually, uh, you know, was doing some reading uh, last night. And this quote is from Wall Street Journal. There's a chat app for emotional support called Coco. And uh, the Coco co-founder said um, in a tweet that um, Coco pulled the AI from its system, right? The reason why is um, the quote is, once people learn the messages, messages let me start that over. Once people learned the messages were co-created by a machine, it didn't work. Simulated empathy feels weird, empty. So 
if you take that kind of paradigm and you kind of understand, and we've seen it, uncanny valley could be one thing. Even with agents that say, oh, I'm sorry for the hold times for being so long. You hit an IVR. Um, hold times are like longer than usual. It's always, that's the usual. It's always longer, right? Uh, we've just become immune and, and there's no, um, the empathy isn't there. And like, you really need that human moment. And I think it just comes to a head when you have so, a better self-service and you need to talk to an, a specialist. So the expectations need to be yeah. are this high and brands need to kind of meet that. Yeah, just a couple of points on that. And I was chatting in a previous podcast to Marine Dubois. I know you know Marine. Um, we were chatting about AI and empathy. And the question I had for Marine was, do you think AI, and I'll ask you the same question, do you think AI will actually ever have empathy or will it always understand when to display empathy? Because to me, those are two different things. Because with data, you can understand now is the right time to show empathy. That does not say that you actually be that an AI system or a human, that you actually have empathy. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't thought about that. If, I, I still think it's just how we're wired. I, I mean, may, maybe it can, but there's still, it's still going through like sentiment detection. Maybe there's tonal stuff there that could pick up, but how humans are imperfect, right? How we are brought up in this world with, with like parents and having that human bond, we're wired towards empathy in that environment. So for us to all of a sudden from customer service experiences or some other things uh, to get um, emotion there, real empathy. I think we're, we're pretty far away from that. Yeah. It's not to say it won't happen. For all we know, a, a baby born now will interact and engage with AI and they'll need to have an AI buddy and, and like a robot here and there. And, and this develops into, into uh, something different and kind of a new age. But um it's going to take a while, I feel. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, conceptually, it's it's hard to actually see or understand an artificial intelligence, however that's formalized, having empathy, because it kind of requires having a soul as we understand it. Um, I think you can certainly train it with data to understand when to display empathy, be that voice, text, however, however or in art and graphics or whatever. But I suppose the other hand of it, you would then say, never say never. Um, so it, it, will it evolve a soul? Will it have empathy and understanding? I don't think it's going to happen in the next five or so years, but with the amount mm -hmm. of investment, um, the amount of data, and also the amount of data is limited clearly. And at some point, mm -hmm. the LMM, mm -hmm. large machine or large machine models are going to run out of data. But um I would never say never, but it, it, it's hard to actually visualize that happening. And we're not in some yeah. sci-fi sci movie world, you know. You know, now, now they say sci-fi movie. Uh, there's a Spike Jones movie, Her, which had Joaquin Phoenix, Scarlett Johansson. And uh, just as you're talking about empathy, it's like, like a chat GPT showing empathy. It's like one system serving so many different people. Maybe you don't get that real one-to-one, yeah. -one, yeah. right? It's generic response. But if you pull off something like in that movie, Her, with Scarlett Johansson, which is just this one AI kind of being, right, in, the, in living in the ether, 
interacting and having a relationship with with that main character maybe at that point because it it may happen at that maybe that one-to-one engagement is is a little bit different and unique which maybe we'll get to well you would imagine if if as the algorithm works that it learns from the data that it's receiving on a one-to-one basis and then can mimic that then yes you would assume that it could build or grow or form or whatever the right term is some form of yeah. empathy and some form of a, a soul um but anyway, i i don't think we're, we're going to go into that uh we're going to hit that in the next couple of years the other thing no. that was um when you were chatting about what you're doing at minerva as well minerva cq sorry that came into my head I mean, i've i gonna say i have a theory if that's the right word that the contact center model is kind of broken and bear with me for a few seconds but if you think about what the contact center does you put your probably your lowest paid least experienced resource capability in front of your most valuable assets i.e your customers um so from that perspective the model is broken because again what do you need in customer services usually knowledge about the product the service that you're selling and trying to get access to that um do you ever see the world where we move away from the you know whatever, 5,000 bums and seats stack them high to a much more distributed world where in a contact center or in a customer experience, you're able to reach out as a consumer and get the right piece of information about your product or service from the right person in or associated with that organization. Now, that not that may not be a contact center agent sitting answering a chat or, or answering a phone. Maybe somebody else buried in the organization that's the right individual to answer your specific query at that point in time. Do you ever see that model evolving? So in uh, kind of like everyone in like an enterprise or an organization has some kind of line connected to them to answer like customer questions and resolve help resolve issues. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so you are not your full time job I suppose isn't sitting as a as an agent wired with a headset answering the next call with an AHT and, and those KPIs we typically measure, you, you would be measured by other KPIs. Like we, we've seen, a pro, we've seen companies try to do that. And I think it was a little bit more skewed on the vendor side as they tried to get outside of the contact center. And you have those terms, CEBP, I remember Avaya, communication enabled business process. You had enterprise wide, uh, enter, enterprise yeah, enterprise-wide interaction routing. I think like it was variant. Uh, I think Genesis may have also kind of uh, done some stuff in this area. It just never, it never took off. And like if if you had the the proof points now, the closest analog to that would be contact center with unified communications, kind of on in that area. I know it's a bit elementary and not really on the experience level that you just described. Some of the companies that I talked to is like a 30% attach rate on a contact center platform. And like you see there, I, I'm sure Zoom is a bit different. It's a lot higher. So um, perhaps with that as kind of a stepping stone for what is to come later on, um, could be possible, but it would be a huge culture shift that's needed at the executive level. And and I think it's just so hard. There's so much resistance there because metrics drive behavior how are you gonna um you, you know you could be zappos and most customer-centric organization right and then you have all these 
um, you have amazing advocates there, but how about everyone else in the back office or what, how, how do you incentivize them? How do you get the metrics there in a way to, um, and, and get them motivated to do that? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's tougher said than done, but I think it's possible, but it'll just take yeah. some time. I, do, I think it's, well, it's, it's something, I don't know whether the industry ever changes. It'd be interesting to see. I think if you could square that circle, if that's the right term, then it would be a, something quite novel. Um, I think we're, we're probably running close to time, Daniel. I know you usurped, or I could chat all day to you because you're a, a font of knowledge. Just, uh, I suppose, wrapping up, we, um, if you're looking forward, let's say, you know, five, 10 years, you know, what do you think? And it's just not about conversation AI, but what, what do you think of the tech, the one or two, three things that you might see in the industry that you're starting to see now that might change the industry significantly? Or is it just yeah. more of the same? I think like just in conversation, I just, cause I, you know, that's where a lot of my history and kind of focus has been. I feel like in a, in a way the chatbots that are out there, a good chunk of them just never delivered on the experience that we had hoped. Um, it's not to say that they won't, but um, there's a lot of bad chatbots out there um, still today. So in a way, that first wave of conversational AI for mass hyper self-service kind of didn't work. Now with ChatGPT, we'll see. And maybe that second wave will really, really help boister more of a renaissance in that self-service capabilities and, and really helping customers find the information that they need and navigate through whatever process it is that they need to do in, in, in a way without, you know, I don't want to go off on a whole tangent of deterministic stuff and compliance, but that's one. So we have AI that could potentially be quite successful in, in self-service and empowering the customer to do things themselves. But the technology question that you're asking, where I think there's going to be a lot of interesting activity is the combining of that machine intelligence and the AI with humans in the moment, that collaborative intelligence piece that I was talking to you about. And, and, and that's really just up-leveling the, uh, the capabilities of, of a human. And I think there's a lot of inherent benefits there as well of like knowledge in real time just being surfaced to um, someone, uh, an agent where a customer is asking a question and they don't know the answer, um, getting them up to speed on certain, you know, signals there, um, empathy, um, emotion detection, things like that. Uh, but overall, it's the AI that combines with that agent needs to evolve to one where they become very familiar and comfortable with it, where they become more confident that's actually making a difference for them, helping their their job, being better at their jobs and, and having that, that value there. That's that is I think um the the big challenge for a lot of companies in our space of is the value there? Is it really helping the agents in their everyday jobs? And then how will that evolve and, and become more uh dynamic and, and kind of like really shape around the agent experience. So, so that's where um, I've been kind of myopically focused, <laughs> well, um, a bit biased, but that's, that's, um, it excites me. Of course, of course. We certainly watch the space for uh, what you guys in Minerva CQ are doing. Um, it's, it's, I mean, all of the spaces is, is widely, it's, it's a, it's a 
in my head, it's certainly a brilliant time to be involved in it again. It's certainly, it's like rolling back the years, but it's exciting. There's lots of activity. There's lots of chat, for want of a better word about it, across the space. So brilliant industry to be involved with and great to be involved with some people like yourself who have been around the industry, have seen the pitfalls. So listen, thank you very much, Daniel. Today has been a pleasure. As I said, I could probably chat for another two hours, but uh, you probably have many better things to do. Um, appreciate you coming on the podcast um, I'm sure we'll be back to uh, have a chat on a, on a future podcast no doubt just so we can catch up to see how you guys are doing thank great. you very much thank you have thanks for having day. me Oliver have a great day Daniel cheers cheers